You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. We are again joined on this episode by a guest of the show, uh, Dr. Rocky Rockwell, a researcher in vertebrate zoology and ornithology with the American Museum of Natural History. We're also, again, joined by our chief scientist here in Memphis, Dr. Tom Mormon, and we're going to continue our discussion of snow goose ecology at La Perouse Bay, and we're also going to discuss some fun observations that uh, that Rocky, our guest, has, has observed over the years, uh, and he's going to share with us some insights from uh, a few non-waterfowl-related uh, studies. He might argue that they are they're definitely related to waterfowl but uh but anyway welcome back to the show rocky thank you thanks for having me on the on the last episode which i I strongly encourage the listeners to go back and and uh, tune into if you haven't it's a phenomenal discussion uh describing the evolution of the uh, light goose uh, population growth issue and and how it was uncovered and and just also a wealth of information on snow goose ecology from start to finish. So I really encourage you to go back and listen to that. And so we want to want to pick up on that discussion. And and I part of what we're going to do on this episode is is sort of give Rocky the floor. You don't spend 50 years studying ornithology and zoology and botany in the Arctic without developing some pretty cool stories without getting your hands and fingers into some other other research that's really uh, that's revealing and it truly uh, representing something of a discovery in nature uh, and so we want to open the open the the door a little bit for for Rocky just to describe some of that but to begin with Rocky share with us some of what you learned about the, I guess we'd say the long-standing nature of the damage that occurred. What you've learned from some of the exposure experiments, as well as the recovery of the marsh that was degraded by the snow geese. Okay. Well, one of the things when we were putting together the the um, original um, Arctic Ecosystems and Perils uh, document uh, is we were trying to come up with a goal, like what do we want to reduce the population to? And one of the admonitions that came out of it is. I had to explain to people that I can't give you a number. I mean, there is no magic number because the environment has changed. And I don't know um, the system, which was once in equilibrium when there were about a million and a half snow geese in the mid-continent. It's not the same ecosystem anymore. So maybe a million and a half is still too many. Don't know. So what we settled on was a statement in that Arctic Ecosystems in Peril that says we need to control the snow goose population until there is evidence of no further habitat damage and evidence of recovery. Well, everybody knows we still don't have the snow goose population under control. There's still more damage going on. But Bob Jeffries and I decided that there is a way to try to ask the question, very simple question, 
will this habitat ever come back? Because it is degraded to the point where people come to La Perouse Bay and fly over some of the areas or see some of the pictures, and it, it looks like a Martian landscape. And the question is, will anything ever come back? So what we did was we set up a series of exclosures. Now, normally, when a botanist uses exclosures, it's in an area where there's active vegetation, and you use these to monitor how much of the vegetation is being cropped off each year. What we did was Bob and I went out and found areas that are just totally degraded, just complete wasteland. And we set up exclosures to keep the geese out because the geese don't wander around and asked a very simple question, will anything come back? What will come back? And how long does it take? And we've got a series of those set up across the tundra. Uh, one of my former students uh, Kit Uvino, who's at Jamestown University right now, is sort of the person that's, that's overseeing that part of the project. So we go out every year and we go to these exclosures and we get down, oh, Kit gets down on her hands and knees and goes along and figures out what's growing every 10 centimeters across these uh, three meter by three meter plots that are scattered across the tundra and degraded habitat. And one of the things that we found is in areas where the snow geese used it for 25 or 30 years, 15 years later, we still have very little recovery. Very little is coming back. The few things that are coming back are salicornia, which is a halophile, a few other plants that are really tolerant of high salinity. But the salinity in those areas is still really high. And those are areas that the snow geese hammered year after year after year for 25 to 30 years. They took it right down. They got rid of the uh, seed bed. They got rid of everything that was, gro that was growable. And they left the soil in a very poor condition. Now, you can get that to come back if you fertilize it, if you do some transplant, if you actually do some reseeding and stuff like that. You can actually coax it back, but you have to first get rid of the salinity, and then you have to add nitrogen and phosphorus to the soil, much like you would if your lawn went down the toilet to bring it back. Other areas where the geese got in in these more interior areas where the geese were not used to living, the graminoids there are much more fragile. So it only took one or two years of grazing and grubbing before those graminoids were not there. So the geese moved on. And what they did was they appeared to have moved on before they destroyed the seedbed and before they really destroyed the soil. And in those areas, five years, 10 years down the road, in some of those, we have complete recovery. So one of the things we've learned is that, yes, it will come back, and it comes back starting with going through the normal series of um, ecological stages that you would expect for this kind of a, of a landscape. You first, get you first get some salicornia, which is a halophile, and then you start getting puccinellia, which is a very salt-tolerant little tiny graminoid, and then you get Carex subspathacea, and it works its way up, and we now actually have willows and things like that growing in some of these plots, as long as they weren't hammered too long. So one of the things we've learned, and we're trying to work with our partners at Wapas National Park, is to see if we can come up with a way to protect their national park by hazing the birds off of areas, 
put them onto new areas so that they don't continually hammer these areas over and over and over. And that's one of the lessons that we've learned to try to uh, mitigate the damage that's being caused by the geese in advance of being able to control the population. So from the perspective of the habitat, if you can reduce the number of years of sustained uh, grubbing and shoot pulling and, and um, grazing that the geese do, you can increase the likelihood that the habitat will eventually recover. Uh, we've actually talked with them about scaling these three-meter square exclosures up to bigger areas to see if that will help. Um, but so far, uh, the National Park has, I guess, better things to spend its money on than put up giant exclosures throughout the National Park for me. Um, but that's, that's some of the experiments that we've been doing, and it's been really informative. So I guess the answer is, and I know Ray has started some of this work at uh, Queen Maud, and I know Gilles Gauthier has done some similar work at Bylot Island, and that it, the story seems to be the same. If you can get the geese off the landscape before they have degraded the soil to a point that it, it can't recover on its own, then the habitat will come back. So it might well be that in, in lieu of reducing the population as much, if we can at least get them to move around and not continue to hammer the areas, sort of spread out the damage, if you will, then we can do a little bit towards saving the habitat. Rocky, how much available uh, inland fresh marsh is there? Like what's the, what's the palette look like for, uh, for the snow geese in, in terms of the – these areas. What are we? I'm not. I'm not too familiar with that area. Uh, are they anywhere close to being resource limited? I guess is the nature of my question. Well, you know, when we first started the whole thing to control the population, there were some people, including my my own professor Fred Cook, and I got into a, a major row about it. And that he felt that if we just left the geese along, then density dependent regulation would kick in. They would eat themselves out of house and home and they would do less well, and so on and so forth. Well, Bob Jeffries coined the phrase, it, that doesn't work because snow geese cheat. What was happening is, yeah, I'd really prefer to eat Puccinellia. But if I don't have Puccinellia, Carex aquatilis works. And I would really be in a salt marsh, but if I don't have a salt marsh, freshwater marsh works. So they're cheating. They're moving into new and new, newer and newer areas. And every year when I fly into new areas, because I've uh, got a really nice cooperating partner in, in Prairie Helicopters out of Gimli, Manitoba, and they'll sometimes they've got to move a machine from point A to point B, and they'll let me non-revenue with them, and I get to fly in areas that I normally can't afford to fly in. And what we're finding is that the geese are moving into habitats that if they had read the book Fred and I wrote years ago, well, basically the geese didn't read the book. Because if they had read the book, they would say, well, we're staying in a salt marsh because that's where Fred and Rocky said we ought to be. Well, they've ignored that. They're in the freshwater marsh, and now they're in the boreal forest. So if you imagine a map of Canada, there's a near infinite supply of boreal forest and inland marsh and stuff like that. I know that Ray has tried to make some computations 
and tried to estimate the amount of habitat that's available to them. But the problem with trying to do that is what's the habitat you're going to assess? Because we once upon a time thought they would only live in salt marsh. So you can calculate the amount of salt marsh. If they run out of salt marsh, they'll eat freshwater marsh. And I'm pretty sure that now that they're running out of freshwater marsh, they're eating boreal forest ponds. And I guess when they get done with that, they'll find something else to eat. Because as I said in the last episode, these guys are the ultimate opportunists. It's the same exact problem we're having with white-tailed deer in the Northeast, same problem we're having with wild turkeys in the Northeast. These are opportunistic species that will just eat whatever. For a snow goose, as long as it's sort of vegetation, they'll go for it. Rocky, I know from just from um, hearing chatter within the within the waterfowl community, snow geese have had a few recent years, maybe a string of recent years of lower than average productivity. Is any of that tied to uh, the degradation of the habitats that you're seeing there? Some of it is, but not very much of it. Um, one of the things that we've now had two years in a row of uh, – 2018 was zero productivity on the Cape Churchill Peninsula, and 2019 was, I'm going to say, 10% productivity on the Cape Churchill Peninsula. That's 10% of normal. Both of those are weather-related. Now, a lot of people cringe with the concept of climate change and global warming, and they don't fully understand that at the latitude that we are on the Hudson Bay coastline, we've warmed up just enough that we now have more snow, more ice, more spring storms with rain that then freezes when it goes back to 20 below zero, and it makes the habitat absolutely unavailable. Snow geese can work their way through snow. Uh, They can work their way through a little bit of ice. But when you have to go out and chip your way through a foot of ice, uh, the snow geese can't do much. They can't nest. There's no place for them to nest. This year, I would say only about 20% of the habitat was available for their nesting. And that's one of the factors we've now had two years in a row. I'm really excited about uh, field season 2020. What happens if you have 75,000 pairs of birds that have failed or nearly all failed two years in a row, are they going to come back or are they going to try to find greener pastures somewhere else? So these kind of catastrophic events that are related to weather are having a real huge effect. You have to modulate that. Well, and the other problem related to that before I go on is another thing that's happened is we have polar bears coming ashore earlier because the ice breaks up. We've had grizzly bears move into the region because it's gotten warmer over in the mid part of um, the Northwest Territories. And grizzly bears have moved east, crossed the river at Churchill, and found Wapas National Park. And we've also, because it's getting warmer and we're having berries moving further north, we now have black bears. So we have all three species of bears to contend with at La Perouse Bay and on the Cape Churchill Peninsula. And once these guys find eggs... They just really go after them. I've gotten old enough that it's tough for me to run down a goose, but even I can catch an egg. And the bears are really adept at finding those. And they literally will stand and go, oh, there's the next one, and just go from nest to nest to nest and eat the eggs. We had an area this year 
that the nesting habitat was open. It's the highest nesting density we'd had in that area in quite some number of years. And when I went to, to leave and come south for a 10-day break in the middle of the season, I flew over the area to just confirm that our projected hatch date was correct. There were no goslings. There were no geese. So I called the camp and told the boys to get out there and take a look at what had happened. Fortunately, they had set up some trail cams, and they phoned me back later that day in Chicago and said, well, we know what happened. And I said, what's that? He said, well, we got pictures of a polar bear, a grizzly bear, and two different black bears out there feeding on all the nests. So those bears had gotten in and just wiped out the entire area. Now, bears being bears, they will be back. They did this in Anderson River Delta on uh, uh, Brant Goose Colony. They've done it several different places with Canada geese across northern Canada. And um, we've also got a number of other predators that have moved into the areas. While we have wolverines on the list in the United States, wolverines are really doing well in northern Manitoba. Wolverines really like snow goose eggs, and they really like goslings, and they really like snow geese, as do the three species of bears. We have wolves, we have arctic and red foxes. So the predator suite has really grown. And those are also really hammering the geese. And again, I don't know what the geese are going to do. We worked on a paper showing the impact of polar bears. This was Dave Coons and I and Linda Gormazano worked on a paper that showed that polar bears could really do a lot of damage to geese, but because the, the timing of them coming ashore when the ice breaks up in the spring is stochastically driven and it doesn't always match up with when the geese are nesting. So there are some years where the geese don't have the predation and all you need is to give a snow goose a couple of years and she can crank out four kids each year and the population keeps growing. And we made the assumption what we called the stupid goose assumption and that is the assumption that if you're nest gets predated one year, you'll come back and try it again and try it again and try it again. Well, we've never been able to test the stupid goose assumption because we've never had more than one year at a time where we had complete failure. And now we've had two in a row, and it'll be very interesting to see what happens this year. The caveat on this is don't forget when we did the initial report for Arctic Ecosystems in Peril, um, there's an analysis that I did, and there's very fanciful terms for it called an elasticity analysis, and you go in as a demographer and you say, which point in the life cycle contributes most of the, most of the population growth rate? It turns out that the elasticity analysis says it's adult survival. When I explained this to Dave Ankney, he looked at me, and his eyes sort of glazed over, and he said, you know, I don't need your fancy partial derivatives and all of that kind of stuff. A snow goose lives eight to 10 years. If you want to control the population, you go in and you stomp on all of Martha's eggs every year for 10 years, or you go in and stomp on her eggs and nine of her friends' eggs in one year, or you shoot Martha. It's all the same thing. It's adult survival that really is the easiest controller of the population. Well, Dave was right, and he had a very good example of what my fanciful uh, analysis showed. So even though we've had a couple, three years or at least a couple of years of reproductive failure, it's not until adult survival starts going down that we're really going to get a control of this population. It's going to take a number of years of reproductive failure in order to really get this population under control. And given the, the sheer abundance and number of colonies of geese and, and an expansion from Arctic habitats into boreal habitats, 
do you and, and I don't know if there's a there may not be an answer for this, but do you think that predators could actually be part of a solution here in terms of reducing productivity of these birds in a at a scale that's real detectable and something we can assess? I think that there is some potential for that. Um, there's not a lot of people that have that are on the ground to study this. Um, I know uh, Grant Gilchrist and Paul Smith that work on Southampton Island on eiders and shorebirds and stuff like that have have reported lots of impact of polar bears coming ashore earlier on their colonies of both shorebirds and the ducks up there. I know Ray has some bears in his region. He doesn't have as many polar bears as we do. But a lot of the big snow goose colonies are in areas where you have braided river deltas. Those braided river deltas are the kind of places that seals hang out. And anywhere in the Arctic where you have seals hanging out, you're going to have polar bears hanging out. If the sea ice starts melting earlier, and this is one of the other things that we've been doing a lot of work on at La Perouse Bay, is what are the bears actually doing? That that's in particular the polar bears. Rumor had it, and some of the experts claimed that, well, polar bears come ashore and they fast during the summer because all they want to eat is seals. And I'm going to, I started going to myself 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Well, that isn't true. I've been here 50 years. Well, at that time, 40 years. And they're, they're always eating. I've seen guys that are so fat they can barely walk will still try to run down a flightless goose and kill it and eat it. These, these things are like a, a teenager at a smorgasbord. They're always hungry. So they don't fast. What they're doing is they're coming ashore earlier. They're finding alternative things to eat. They're eating more of those. Uh, in, in the Cape, on the Cape Churchill Peninsula, they're eating caribou. They're eating caribou calves. Uh, they catch caribou not by outrunning them, which they can't do, but they just ambush them. You don't have to outrun it if you can outsmart it. Uh, they're eating snow geese. They're eating goslings. They're eating eggs. They're eating eider ducks. They're eating berries. They're eating moose calves. They're eating all sorts of stuff. And I can't but imagine that polar bears in other parts of the Arctic, if the sea ice continues to break earlier and the bears come ashore earlier, they're not going to sit on a shoreline holding a sign, oh, I'm starving, please send seals. They're going to catch stuff, and they're going to catch whatever's on the land. I think the bears in the Hudson Bay region have a little bit of a leg up on this because there's two to three months of the year that the Hudson Bay lowlands and the Hudson Bay is ice-free. So these guys have evolved feeding on terrestrial stuff. It's a myth that they fast during the summer. I know the experts still claim it. They still jump up and down and yell at me, but no, no, they fast. Well, I'm going, how many times have you guys spent the summer? Come spend the summer with me. I'll invite anybody to come spend the summer with us. Come spend August and watch what the bears are doing, and then you tell me that they're fasting. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Rocky, you've you've touched on uh, one of the other things that we wanted to uh, have you talk about, and that's your polar bear work. But before we do that, I want to wrap up uh, in some way this discussion of, of snow geese. Uh, this 
this has been incredibly educational uh, for uh, for me, for all of us. Uh, and we've talked about the damages on the on the breeding grounds and the impacts of those, and how that extends in some regards to other species that that occupy those those habitats. Uh, I have two questions. Well, I, I guess what I would say first is, at some point in the future, we'll have another guest on that will talk about snow geese and the hyperabundance of snow geese from the standpoint of their impact on wintering grounds. There are some joint ventures, some NAWAMP joint ventures and conservationists that are that are as concerned about the impacts of of these hyperabundant snow geese on competing when competing for the food resources for. Uh, for ducks, uh, as as we are there, the as we're concerned about their impacts on uh, on those habitats in the Arctic breeding grounds. So we're gonna, that's another part of this snow goose story that we haven't really touched on. I actually believe we're going to have an article in the Ducks Unlimited magazine upcoming that'll touch on that, so people will be introduced to that. But but at some point we'll have folks on to discuss that. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to ask as we were talking about productivity and density dependence. And uh, recently we had an episode, a couple of episodes actually, with Dr. Vanessa Harriman. I don't know if you had an opportunity to listen to those yet, but her uh, that discussion related to an observation of hers from the research up at Carrick Lake where she documented fleas in the nest of uh, lesser snow and Ross's geese. And the observation was that as flea infestation increased, uh, the likelihood of nest success decreased. So I guess the the most simple question is: Have you seen uh, that that's have you seen those fleas at the La Perouse Bay colony? And have y'all done any work on those? We've actually noticed it. Ray turned me on to this observation a number of years ago, and we've been monitoring the nest for that. And we would get, I would say, maybe one in twenty nests. Um, and you you can tell it because the eggs have got blood specks all over them. It's not a very common thing for us. Now, I have a feeling that it's probably because the the actual density of packing of our snow goose geese nests, our snow goose nest, is a little bit farther apart than Ray's. We don't have the the geese per unit area that Ray has at Queen Maud Gulf. And I have a feeling that that allows the geese not to spread these things one to another. And I think that's why we don't have the infestation. Well, I just wanted to check on that because Vanessa and I were talking about that, and she wasn't completely certain on the status of flea infestation at all the other colonies. So uh, had you on, wanted to make sure we asked that question. question. And uh, at this point, uh, this is where we sort of give you the floor to talk about some of the other polar bear research or any other uh, work that you might have going on there um, in the Arctic. Well, be- before I mention the polar bear research, I want to tell you about one other thing we're doing with the snow geese, and that's the work of a research partner of mine, Susan Ellis Feligi from University of North Dakota. Um, what she's done is she's added a, a new dimension to the program where she's brought an unmanned aircraft up, and they've been flying all sorts of of transect flights, and some of the stuff they're doing with that is trying to figure out better ways to monitor over a bigger geographic area. And this is work that is really cutting edge. It really takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of time, and it takes a lot of patience because these this unmanned aircraft that she uses, it's a fixed wing, not a, a quadcopter, and it flies just back and forth, gets pictures, you get mosaics, and she and her students are looking at reassessing the level of habitat damage with these things. And they're also doing a lot of work on trying to 
uh, assess nesting density and stuff like that. And for us, this is a really important thing because one of the things we'd like to be able to do is assess the damage and what happens to the habitat at times of years, which for us are just too dangerous to be out walking around in the field. Uh, early in the season, we have bear encounters and we have protocols. And in 52 years or 51 years of operation so far, I've never had anyone hurt, nor have we ever had to harm a bear. We've had some close calls and we've had some situations where everybody's always on guard and stuff like that. But I pulled the plug on field operations when we start getting uh, polar bears thicker than fleas. And it would be really great to be able to use these unmanned aircraft to do that. So she's been doing the cutting edge starting stuff on that. And I would really encourage you to get her on one of these podcasts because I think your audience would be really infatuated with the kind of work that she and her students have been able to do using that new technology. I think that's a great idea. We'll we'll make sure uh, that happens. Hey, before you go on, uh, what is the – just to give – uh, our listeners and me personally, I don't know the answer to this. Uh, what's the what's the critical threshold of number of polar bears uh, beyond which you pull the plug on field operations? Okay, it depends on the sea ice and it depends on where the bears come ashore. The last couple of three years, we've lucked out. Polar bears are actually pretty lazy, and they'll ride on the ice flows until it hits the shoreline, and then they'll waddle off, come ashore, and start hanging out. They take naps, and then they start looking for stuff to eat. And the last two or three years, they've come ashore quite a bit south of us and slowly wandered up the coast. In some years, that the ice flows come ashore right at La Perouse Bay. And I've had circumstances whereby I would say the end of July, we've had things like um, five to ten bears a day at the electric fence at the camp. And that's when we close her down and pull the plug. And like the, this electric fence is how far from your living quarters? Well, it's it's where the, the the camp is on an island, and the fence surrounds the the um, island. It's in the water, so the bears are standing in water when they hit the electric fence. So they're really well grounded. So it's at the closest point to a building is probably 20 feet. Um, we've we've only had one breach, and that was basically human error, where somebody was trimming grass under the fence, left it up a little bit. Uh, cub got under the fence. Mom was on the outside and called it to come back to her. And of course, he tried to go out at a different spot, hit the fence, burned his nose, squealed, and she just came right through the fence. Um, it's, it's a very effective deterrent, but we always have people, you'll see if you come to the camp, you'll see somebody gets up on the roof every 10 to 15 minutes and scans the horizon to see if we've got a bear coming in. If we do, we get people on the roof. We've got a protocol that we use. We wait until the bear actually hits the fence, and then we fire scare, scare cartridges as it's running away as sort of a positive reinforcement. And the bears learn. So if you see that bear that's already got his nose burned, let's say the next day out in the field, all he has to hear is the sound of you racking a scare cartridge into a Remington 870, and they turn and run. And that's what I want. I call it my little educational program for polar bears. That's that little nugget there is is incredibly amusing and and uh, entertaining in itself. That's 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 something you don't get every day. That's that's for sure. Well, you have to. The the thing that I was admonished. Let me add one thing here and give some credit to a man that really deserves it. When I first started, uh, Fred had sent me and some other guys up to put 
to go out and put in the camp. And I'd met a young man in town named uh, Danny Big Hat. That was the family name was Big Hat. And he wanted, we became good friends. We were the same age. And he said, wow, I want to come out and help you guys. This would be fun. I figured, boy, this is a complete score for me. He was Dene. He'd lived off the land. He knew everything about the land. And uh, so the morning we met him to go out on snow machines with all of our gear, he had another person with him. And I said, you know, who's this? And he said, well, that's my grandfather. And he wanted to come along. And I said, well, that's, that's even better. I said, what's his name? And he said, well, I don't know. We always call him grandfather. So that's what we called him. And he stayed with us for about four weeks, helped us set up the camp. We learned a lot from him. His English was a lot better than my Dene. And uh, one day, just before he left, he and I were sitting there talking, and I said, well, give me some advice. I'm a young guy. I want to start doing this work. What's, what's your advice to me? And he said, oh, it's very simple. Don't be a white man. And I sort of jokingly looked at my hand and then looked back at him, and I said, well, that's going to be a little tough. And he sort of grinned, and he said, I mean, don't be like a white man. Don't think you know everything. Sit on a rock and watch the world. Learn from what you see. And he said that especially applies to bears. Every bear is different, and you can learn how to deal with them if you just watch them and learn what their behavior is all about. And that's what we've done, and I think that's one of the ways we've been able to be safe. So when we go up on the roof and we're waiting for them to come in, they don't just charge in. They come in very slowly. They're very wary. They smell everything. They taste things. They're very timid. They're unlike grizzlies that just sort of charge in and certainly unlike black bears that just are the proverbial bull in a china shop. But the polar bear is very measured in his approach, very patient, and you can learn a lot from him. And when you watch this and then you read in the traditional literature, you, you realize that the northern Amerindians and the Inuit have all uh, patterned a lot of their hunting styles after their watching of polar bears because they hunt in the very same way. They take a very slow, measured approach to it. And um, that's been really entertaining. About, I guess, 10, 12 years ago, I had a young student approach me, a lady named Linda Gormazano, who wanted to work on the estimating polar bear populations or really coyote populations initially by using genetic approaches basically use the DNA in the, in the, of the animals as sort of the mark. So you do a capture mark recapture analysis without ever having to tag them. And I said, well, instead of doing coyotes, why don't we do it with polar bears? And so she said, that's great. She trained a dog and she came north with me for several years with the dog. The dog would find polar bear poop. We would haul it all back to the American Museum. And um, she was working on estimating all of this. And uh, to make a long story short, in the process of trying to do this, she wound up having to sort through all of the polar bear poop that we had to figure out what was in it because the uh, DNA analyses weren't working because some poop had berries in it and some had fish and some had caribou. And those are cofactors that were interfering with the DNA analyses. So by the time she got that done on 1,200 samples, she said, you know, wow, this has taken me a year and a half to do. I want to write some of this stuff up as part of my thesis. And I said, sure, do it. And so we have learned more about the diet of polar bears and the fact that it's changed over the years from that research. Um, she got her PhD and very tragically before she was able to go on, she died of um, cerebral aneurysm and we lost a real advocate for polar bears. But we've kept a lot of the observational work going on the bears. And our interest is in trying to answer the very simple question that grandfather Big had 
taught me, and that is see what the bears are doing. See what they're doing. Instead of saying, oh, well, climate change is going to do this to them, ask, what are the bears doing about climate change? Are they standing on the shoreline holding a placard saying send seals? Of course not. They're eating something different. And they are adapting very quickly because just like snow geese, they're also very opportunistic critters. And um, I think that people that feel and are predicting the demise of polar bears have really not sat and watched what these guys do. If you think about it, polar bears split off from brown bears probably 500,000 years ago. Now, that's key because 150,000 years ago was the Eemian interglacial period, which was much warmer than what we have now or what is projected by the end of this century. And somehow the polar bears survived the Eemian. So they've done it before, and I don't see any reason to suppose they can't do it again. Hmm. That's fascinating. That, and help me um, – I'm going to go back just a bit here. Did I hear correctly that because of all the other – um, items in the in the poop of the polar bear. She was unable to do uh, – your student was unable to do a successful mark recapture population estimation? She was not able to get the genetic thing cracked until she figured out what each of the diets were, and that was going to then require that she devise analyses for the DNA that were specific to the various things that were in those particular piles of poop. So that if you want to amplify the DNA from poop – that was primarily containing berries, you'd have to use one assay. And if it was caribou, you'd have to use a different assay. And by the time she'd gone through all of that, she had more than enough data and it spent more than enough time to merit a PhD thesis. So she started on that. And we have a colleague at uh, University of North Dakota who's been working on, and he's finally figured out basically how to get this genetics work done. We've got the samples. It's, it's simply a matter now of, of finding the money to actually be able to do that. Okay. Well, thanks, Rocky. This has been fantastic. Uh, I know whenever we first uh, sort of sketched out this this episode or these two episodes, there were actually several other topics on our list that we wanted to talk about. I know you've done some work on on eiders uh, up there at, at La Perouse Bay, and that's a topic that I wanna we want to get into, but I suspect we could talk for a half hour on that. I also want to get your perspectives at some future time on just observationally. You've been working there for over 50 years, and you've seen things change, and, and I want to hear those stories. I want our listeners to hear those stories. You've shared some of that, but also just sort of big picture. We want to have you back on to discuss that. Um, and then also, I'm sure you have some fun stories that, uh, that, you would, be, uh, that would be worth sharing. Uh, working in such a remote location certainly brings with it some challenges, and you have a lot of time uh, to, to do things that you don't back here in, in what you might call civilization. So uh, if you're willing, we'd love to have you back on to talk, uh, talk about those topics. But, but before, we, before we close out here, I did want to give you kind of final say, make sure there wasn't anything that we overlooked or any other topic that you wanted to, uh, to present here to the audience today. Yeah, the, the one thing I'd like to talk about, I know Ray mentioned the, the, the difficulties of working 300 kilometers from a point of, of reference for him, and we're a lot closer. We're only 35, 40 miles out of Churchill, Manitoba. But one of my pieces of advice for any young person that wants to work anywhere in the Arctic is that you cannot do the kind of research that we do if you don't have the full support of the townspeople that are nearby. 
because you have to depend on them for pretty much everything. And you need to become part of that community. You need to make sure that you interact with them. I spend a lot of my time uh, helping with the education of the students in the town and interacting with the folks that live there. Um, and in exchange, if I have something that breaks and I don't know how to fix it, I can get on the radio and I can call someone in town and someone will talk me through how to fix, how to get the generator rewired, how to get this fixed, how to get that fixed. If I need some extra food, I can call and somebody will order it. Somebody will take it over the helicopter base and get it out to me. And I simply want to close out by saying the 51 years that we've successfully completed at La Perouse Bay would not have been possible without the goodwill of the people of Churchill, Manitoba. That's a great tribute to that uh, to the folks of that of that town. Uh, and th- thanks for bringing that point out. That certainly is uh, is, is worth noting. Sage advice that that we can apply to pretty much anything that we do in life uh, to learn from those around us and upon which we depend. Uh, and again, thank you, Rocky. This has been phenomenal. Thank you to my co-host here, other special guest. Uh, Dr. Tom Mormon. Tom, thank you. Thanks, Nick. I really enjoyed it, Rocky. Well, thank you, guys. It was really fun. I really enjoyed myself, and I look forward to hearing the podcast. We will be in touch. Have you back on in the future. Thanks, Rocky. Okay. Take care, guys. Thanks again to our special guest on this episode, Dr. Rocky Rockwell from the Museum of Natural History in New York. Uh, also want to thank uh, our special guest uh, from in-house here, Dr. Tom Mormon, our chief scientist. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for his wonderful work in getting these edited and then out to you, our listeners. And our listeners, we thank you again for spending your time with us on these podcasts. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. And most importantly, we thank you for your commitment and passion in waterfowl and wetlands conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.